This is an AMI podcast. I'm Juita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Indigenous women face a number of socioeconomic barriers in Canada today. They are grappling with the gendered legacy of colonialism. The 1876 Indian Act codified a patriarchal legal system. After that point, Indigenous women were excluded from band councils, and the Act introduced other discriminatory measures that deprived Indigenous women and their children of status and the right to live on reserve. As a result, to this day, Indigenous women experience poverty, violence, and single parenthood at rates higher than the general population. Despite the odds being stacked against them, Indigenous women are, however, taking the lead in healing the wounds left behind from colonialism. One thing is clear. There cannot be reconciliation without feminism. Today, we discuss gender and Indigenous issues. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joita Gupta. It's really good to have you with us on the program and we've had so many conversations on this program and I would say in general about Indigenous issues. But in other spheres, we've talked about access to abortion and a woman's right to choose. It really felt like it was a good time to bring these different conversations together and have a conversation or a dialogue about how gender intersects with disability, which in turn intersects with indigeneity. My guest today is Judy Hughes. Judy is the special advisor to the CEO for the Native Women's Association of Canada. And I'm really pleased to have her with us because she is extremely busy and juggles many responsibilities. Judy, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And and hello, I'm happy to be here. Let me get the obvious question out of the way first. Why is it so important to consider gender when we talk about Indigenous people and Indigenous rights? Well, like as, as you know, in different societies and different cultures, there's many different values and norms assigned to men and women. And most obvious are, are the gender roles and responsibilities like, say, the breadwinner or the caregiver different types like that, who is supposed to be working and who isn't supposed to be working. So this does take a, a toll now, like when we're moving forward like into these times now, like past the references to the Indian Act and, and also mm-hmm. trying to deal with colonialism in, in terms of, of that. So what we want to want to do in this is looking at gender in a way to put an accurate or targeted perspective on the needs. And that's one of the uh, big pieces that in, that the Native Women's Association of Canada does. And so what are the needs of women in the Indigenous community? So our, our biggest priority right now, because it is the biggest priority from the women from the communities, is looking at ways to stop the violence and looking at ways to implement the uh, 231 calls for the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. Now mm-hmm. that one sound, might sound like a big one, but it is the most important because it's also being more um, amplified because of the pandemic. Uh, some of the other needs, I, I think, in, in terms of the social supports are very 
big in terms of Indigenous women being able to move forward and the responsibilities, particularly um, around the children and and what they can do in terms of trying to um, make a living right now. Mm -hmm. A lot of ground to cover there. One of the things I read about was the fact that violence against women spiked during the pandemic. What sort of change did you see in the numbers or the trends when it comes to violence against Indigenous women during the pandemic? Did it stay about the same or did things go up or get worse? From the studies that ANWAC has done and the surveys that ANWAC has done um, with the grassroots women, they have told us that they have experienced um, very high numbers of, of violence and in particular because they're stuck in a home. and. Mm. And obviously, this is more uh, in, in terms of the, the violence when it comes to dis disabled women or women mm -hmm. with disabilities. It's more uh, the spike is higher, indeed, because they don't have they don't have a lot of their supports in there. Uh, like even people that would come in to help them, like through other support services because of the pandemic and the fear of COVID, they didn't come into the home. So the women were left a lot on their own. And this caused uh, a lot more um, anxiety too, of course, and mm. uh, and an increase in the violence that happened towards uh, Indigenous women. But the the fact of the matter is, it's a sad reality. But this problem of violence against Indigenous women long predates the pandemic. What would you say are some of the systemic barriers that have contributed to? this being as widespread a problem as it is today? Well, yes, because there's, there's an overarching, overarching racism that's being against Indigenous people um, right across the continuum. And I think with uh, colonialism and patriarchy, where it's made a very specific shift in the community of Indigenous people, particularly when they see it as interfering with the cultures or imposing in uh, Western values, and what that means to Indigenous people when there's that big of a shift in there. Also, we know that in, in societies that for Indigenous women in particular, that we sometimes are not seen as human beings and people mm -hmm. think that that they can uh, attack us and nobody will say anything. And this happens quite a bit. Um, so that's on a wider scale. But when we're talking about um violence uh, in in the home like the domestic and the violence in the homes for sure in in indigenous families but um it yeah. is a hard question to answer because i think one of the things we when we talk about these issues as journalists i think at least for me i think we we tend to not be as immersed in the issue but i think for you as an advocate as someone who's done this work for years possibly decades now there's a lot of um, there's a lot of hurt and pain in having a conversation about an issue that seems to not only not be getting any better but seems to be getting worse. How do you deal with the emotional fallout of the work that you're doing? Well, that is difficult, but at NWAC we do have a pretty good support system, and we also have elders that we can uh, contact and call almost at any time of the day or night. Uh, at least that's what, I tell, that's what they tell us, so we have that access. Plus, at home, I have uh, good family support, which, which is needed to be able to do this kind of work. And I think an understanding, uh, like from my friends and my family, an understanding that this is a passion, this is work that I've chosen, 
and work that I will be doing. And so they accept that and they accept me as, as part of that. Uh, sometimes it is very, very difficult to um, separate the emotion. Of course, you do have to do that when you're working with the women in the families, but separate, like when you're with your uh, co-workers or other people and the elders, we do have that time uh, to be able to uh, debrief from it, which is very important. And I think that's one of the major things that a lot of us haven't been able to to do because we've been so extremely that the needs are so high in the communities, especially during um, the pandemic. And now it's starting to come out of it. It makes a, a big difference as well. So that's really that's one thing I'm grateful to NWAC for is the supports that they put in place for dealing with this issue. Hmm. It's a lot for one person or for any number of people to to deal with on an ongoing basis. When they announced the inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, that was a couple of years back, how hopeful were you about the outcome of the inquiry? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, even before the inquiry actually took place, were you, were you thinking to yourself, Judy, this is the turning point that we've all been waiting for? That's what we were hoping for, for sure. And I think uh, for we had we had high hopes in some areas, like for example, like the truth would be heard. Uh, people of Canada would hear what actually uh, happened in terms of murdered and missing Indigenous women, and and how the crisis continues, and looking at ways that that it could be ended. Um, we were very disappointed that it was such a short period of time that we knew that we wouldn't be able to uh, get very far with that. I mean, there was only only just over 2,000 voices that were heard in that. And we have that many people that would would have wanted to speak their truth in, in Saskatchewan and Treaty 4 territory in homeland of the Métis, where I am. Um, so we were hoping for a lot more than what we got out of it, but of, but it was restricted by the uh, federal government in terms of the work that could be done with the National Inquiry. And of course, as a result of the inquiry, they've got about 200 plus recommendations. You'd like to see all of them implemented, but if you had to prioritize, what do you think are the most urgent recommendations that need to come into effect? Well, in terms of the 231 calls for justice that are there, the most urgent ones that we heard is in, in basically call 1.1 of the uh, calls for justice. And that was, that was uh, to be able to have safe places for Indigenous women and families uh, to be able to go so they could handle their grief and their trauma and other issues. And so that in particular is one of the major things that uh, ANWAC has done on its own. And mm -hmm. that is developing a resiliency lodge. Uh, one, we have a resiliency lodge in Quebec. And a second resiliency lodge is being built in New Brunswick. Now, this, in, uh, this is where um, individual uh, women and, uh, and women with their children can come. And they will, they will go there. And there is no agenda in there. So if they want to get up, they, they can come during for day programs. They can come for uh, overnight programs. And this was an initiative that um, was a resolution at the ANWAC Annual General Assembly that ANWAC would build a resiliency lodge in every province and territory mm -hmm. across Canada. And uh, so far, 
Uh, like we said, we got number two started. We have applications in for a number of other resiliency lodges, and uh, uh, so that was the the major one. The other one that is is very significant um, is is housing. Um, mm-hmm. That's an area for Indigenous uh, women and Indigenous single parents that still is a major problem across Canada. Needing safe places. Uh, where they can go, there we we now refer to them as low barrier safe places for um, Indigenous women to be able to live and have some security. So that you know, if you can't pay your rent, like say for example, if you can't pay your rent, uh, you're not kicked out or evicted right away. They try to look at ways that that can help them with that. If you happen to have a an addiction or somebody, you know, phones in on you because of of uh, that they say you're drinking or partying too loud, like the landlord's not going to kick you out or evict you mm-hmm. because we want to look at ways that, that we can help with that so people can get better, um, you know, the, in regards to to that. And another big um, important one, and I have the booklet beside me, but I just can't see what the call number is in terms of it, is uh, mm-hmm. wanting to get a fund for all of the children that are left behind for their education and for their social supports because many of the children are now left without any parents. Um, mm-hmm. They may have a grandparent, some some don't, so they go into foster care, but we would like for the, for the grandparents that take on the role or the aunts and uncles that take on the role of, of mother for the, the children, they get no support unless you put your child in care and they are not going to put their niece or they're not going to put their granddaughter in care. So therefore they really have minimal or no supports from the so-called system. So this is a a specific area that the federal government needs to act upon, uh, you know, to ensure that those children are looked after and they don't end up in, in uh, care forever and lost in the system. Well, early in our conversation, you mentioned that the rates of violence in Indigenous communities was particularly high. When I think about the housing crisis in Indigenous communities, how does that issue play into the ability of women with disabilities who may want to leave an abusive relationship or an av- or a toxic living situation to actually move out and find somewhere else to go? Are, is there such a thing as accessible housing? How easy is it? for Indigenous women with disabilities to flee if they need to? It is very, very difficult um, for anyone in general to, um, what people have to understand, it's very difficult for a woman without disabilities to flee. And so Mm -hmm. if you have the added situation of having a disability, then it becomes more so. And in particular, like there's really no accessible housing in that sense. Um, because if you have to flee, first of all, you have to have a place where you can go. And even if you're looking at shelters, which can be considered housing, mm-hmm. um, then you can go there for two or three days, maybe. And, and of course, once a woman has made up her mind to leave, she needs to have stability. She needs to ensure that uh, she has safety. And a lot of these places, they don't have any safety or security as as well, and, and anything that you look at, like low-income housing or mm-hmm. something like that, uh, rarely do they have security. Rarely does a woman have any funds, 
and especially when when you try to move out, even if you plan it ahead, which we recommend with all women, and we work with with them if they choose to come to us to help them with their escape plan. Um, just having to have the first month's rent and the first month's damage deposit basically eliminates any in, any Indigenous woman or any mm-hmm. and or any Indigenous woman with disability from, from leaving. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to find other ways, and I think the best way is for you know us to look at um, building our own homes, being in control of our own apartments or our own duplexes or our own houses, you know, and and ensuring that there are safe places for women that don't have all those uh, barriers in place, which we know that they can't do. Other barriers are a lot of the places that are available have stairs, and if you have uh, you know, physical disability, that's extremely difficult. If you have a pet with you, that's extremely difficult. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of, of, of blockages in particular. With, I'm, I'm hopeful at this meeting that we had with the FBT ministers yesterday uh, in housing that uh, we can definitely look at what kind of role that ANWAC can, can take on in terms of helping build those apartments and houses and making uh, them accessible and I did have a number of questions, and the ministers of people responsible for uh, Indigenous women, Indigenous women with disabilities, um, have uh, contacted me to set up future meetings. So that, that looks hopeful. It is hopeful. And that's where I want to take the conversation. When we talk about the violence against Indigenous women, it feels like it's a big problem and that solutions are far from being found. But I want to try and end on a positive note. We've only got about two minutes left. Judy, what is it, what in the present climate would you say gives you hope? Is there anything that you see changing that makes you feel optimistic? Yes, I think, well, for me, I've seen some movement forward, like, and I think particularly as the um, National Inquiry, as a catalyst that now there's a number of women who will speak out and speak up and that they are seeking help and other positive things in just in the way that ANWAC is advocating in terms of, of uh, getting the 231 calls for justice implemented. Uh, we did make our own 66-point national action plan because of the failed national action plan or inaction plan of the federal government. And um, and NWAC taking such a strong role in terms of, of uh, both looking at the housing issue, looking at the mm-hmm. healing issue. So that is, that's what's hopeful right now. And, and hopefully we can put in more uh, support, uh, more abilities to keep the children out of the system from uh, the families. Because right now, even uh, the fact of, of if a husband is beating up uh, his wife, or a man is beating up the woman and there's children involved, in some provinces, the child welfare agency will step in and uh, just take the children because they're saying Mm -hmm. the mother can't protect the child. So that's not a positive note, but I mean, uh, we're looking at at those systems to be able to help the families move into a more safer place and that there is some action being taken in terms of, of that. And it's also important uh, you know, for news media like yourself across the country, there's great uptake on that too. 
in terms of talking about the issues, putting them out there, uh, bringing that awareness and, um, you know, allowing us to talk about the issues that ordinarily we wouldn't be able to talk about before. Uh, and, and that's very critical in, you know, where we are right now is to have that additional support to get the word out to the women that they do have a safe place to contact in NWAC. Judy, thank you so much for speaking to us today. I know that it was a, a difficult conversation, and I also know that we didn't really get to talk about everything I had wanted to talk about, but I'm really grateful that you took some time out of your day to speak to us and shed some light on this important issue. You're welcome. Judy Hughes is with is a special advisor to the CEO for the Native Women's Association of Canada. Let me bring in technical producer Grace Schofield to get a sense of what Grace has been thinking about over the course of this conversation. I certainly have a couple of things I'd like to share. Grace, welcome to the program. Thanks for stepping in for Nasreen Abdul-Majid. Thank you. No problem at all. What jumped out at you when you when you heard Judy talking? Was there anything you had you heard there that you hadn't heard before? I think one of the biggest things that stood out to me, and it's not something that I'd never heard before, but hearing Judy mm -hmm. talk about it really made it kind of hit home for me, was the support that Judy and the rest of the employees deserve and have from their employer and the support that's needed. Because to hear about these issues every day and to have, you know, to read through all of these and talk to the clients and that can, I can't imagine how hard that must be. And you could hear it in Judy's voice during the interview. It's a very emotional topic. And I'm just so happy that they have the support that they need from their employers. And Judy mentioned her family and her friends really taking care with her, which I think is just so important. And also building on that, just talking about things like resiliency lodges. I think that's a really good idea. And that is something I hadn't heard about before. Just giving women a safe space where they can deal with the emotional impact because Violence against women is such a long-standing issue. And when you factor in things like disability, you factor in things like be being in an indigenous community, you factor in living in a remote area where maybe you don't have access to public services, it can feel like all the oppression and all the stress is piling on one on top of the other. And so having an island or a place where you can be with like-minded individuals where you can you can talk about what you've gone through with your family, with your partner, with your kids, without fear of judgment, would be really important for anyone who is fleeing domestic violence. But when you think about Indigenous women specifically and the legacy of racism, gender discrimination that they've dealt with over not just years, but decades, centuries, it's really politically speaking, a powerful intervention to create spaces where people can feel supported in, in speaking their truth. Hey, Grace, it's really been good chatting with you and getting your take on it. Thanks a lot again for filling in for Nasreen today. And uh, I hope you'll come back and, and uh, you know, uh, push the buttons and, and make sure that the pulse gets on air. Thanks a lot. No problem. Anytime. That's all the time we have for today. As you heard, Grace Scofield is the technical producer in for Nasreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio. And I've been your host, Chuita Gupta. If you have any feedback about today's show, you can always write us an email, write to feedback at ami.ca, or you can find us on Twitter 
at AMI audio. Use the hashtag PulseAMI. I hope that you will reach out with any thoughts or suggestions you have about this show or future programming. If there are topics you'd be interested in hearing about or if there are issues that you'd want us to cover on the program, I am all ears, as they say. On behalf of the crew here on The Pulse, I'd like to say thanks a lot for listening and enjoy the rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.